Hello, and welcome to the Silicon Alley Podcast. Super excited you could join me today. I'm William Glass, CEO and co-founder of Ostrich, and of course, your host of the Silicon Alley Podcast. And today, I sit down with Vince Carter, a 30-year veteran at a telecommunications company, the host of the CFO at Home Podcast, and a man with a failed entrepreneurial attempt. We dive deep into that failure, a failed franchise attempt to be specific, and the red flags that Vince ignored along the way that went against his better judgment and even the math. You'll hear Vince share his experience in corporate America and why the best investment he made was the first $100 that he invested in his 401k. A little background on Vince. Vince Carter is a podcaster, husband, father, and 30-year veteran of corporate America, holding a variety of positions in telecommunications, technical, and financial management. He's also a self-described money nerd, spending his spare time consuming articles, books, podcasts on the subject. He holds an MBA and a certificate in financial planning from, the, uh, from Florida State University and has completed Ramsey Solutions Financial Coach Master Training. Say that 10 times fast. Vince has also served as the CFO in his own home throughout, the 25 year, throughout his 25-year marriage and has two sons, both currently in college. Vince started the CFO at Home podcast as a way to provide help to others like him who are in charge of managing their family's finances. And for those joining for the first time, on the Silicon Alley podcast, I talk to entrepreneurs, VCs, and top performers like Vince to understand what it truly takes to grow and scale a business. You'll get actionable advice that you can apply in your own business and life. So if you've not already, please pound that subscribe button and follow the Silicon Alley podcast so you get notified when episodes drop every Friday. And if you hear something that you like, please be sure to share the podcast with others. It helps the podcast grow and your friends will thank you. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy Today's money-focused episode of the Silicon Alley podcast featuring the Vince Carter. You got no time to waste, but still you hesitate. Caught in a circle saying I'll never leave this place. Vince, welcome to the Silicon Alley podcast. Super excited to have you on today. Thank you, William. So glad to be here. Yeah, and it's it's funny that we're we're now on these sides of the mic, so to speak. Seeing as uh, I had the pleasure of sitting down on your podcast, CFO at home, and uh, now we get to to do it the other way around. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it is strange, but we'll we'll find our flow here very quickly, I'm sure. Exactly, exactly, and I'm excited to dive in. You've obviously got a lot of a lot of experience when it comes to the the personal finance side, but also in terms of your your career is built in technology specifically and being on the technical side of a large telco. And so, want to definitely dive into that and some of the things that you've seen change. Um, so, what would be great is kind of to start there. Would you would you mind giving a quick little elevator pitch of who you are and then kind of what led you into technology in general? Okay, sure thing. Uh, the best way I think of just kind of summarizing it, I am a 30 plus year veteran of uh, the industry that I'm in. Uh, it, it's in, in the telco industry, we'll, we'll just leave it general in that way. I <laughs> uh, have worked a lot of different sides of the equation there. Uh, started out with a landline telco, um, worked uh, on that side of the house, I want to say for seven or eight years but I've spent the majority of my time in the wireless side of the industry, uh, doing everything from uh, planning, engineering, uh, project management, uh, financial management, you name it, I've done it, but that's really the industry that I've spent uh, my professional life in. Gotcha. Yeah. Thanks, Vince. So what led you, have you always been interested in technology? What led you down that path originally when you, uh, you know, landed and, and 
you know, telecommunication specifically. Yeah. Yeah. When I look back, uh, even, uh, in my formative years, I really had two interests. I, I've, you know, only had two interests in my whole life. Um, I'm not a one trick pony, but I am a two trick pony. Uh, one would be technology and the other would be finance that, that we'll talk about a little later. But as far as technology is concerned, yeah, I was, I was the kid who was asking, you know, for Christmas for, um, for, for those who remember Radio Shack, oh, yeah. uh, they, they used to have all these neat little kits for kids where you could build your own computer or uh, 75 in one electronics projects, 150 in one electronics projects. I was that kid. So as long as I can remember, I just had a natural, um, really curiosity. Um, I, I guess at that time, we thought about it more as, as electronics, that type of thing. But uh, electronics, computers, and really... Uh, it was right along the, the timeline when these things were really developing. So uh, I think that was kind of fortunate timing for me because I have seen uh, the, the computer uh, industry um, develop from from nothing um, uh, all the way from my Commodore 64 I had when I was a kid. <laughs> so it, it's just always been natural interest for me. Gotcha. Yeah. So yeah, wanting to put together and create things and build things. So yeah, what was that like? You know, obviously you've seen things change. What are some of the changes that you've seen when it comes to technology over the course of your 30 plus year career in the industry and some of the things that um, you're excited about in in the future technology wise? Yeah. 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 And, and particularly in, in, uh, telco and and it's kind of odd to even refer to it as telco now because it it is so much more than that. Yeah. What would you refer to it as then we can, we can throw telco out and use, uh, the proper terminology. I I haven't found the new terminology. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) It's just outdated. It's just only, yeah. 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 It is. And, And I think we're all kind of, uh, searching for, for a new terminology, but, um, I can remember at the start of my career, I mean, one of the big things we were implementing was caller ID, if you can imagine it. So uh, I've, I've seen every development, you know, basically from that to really uh, the, the services that we're providing with uh, implementing 5G. Uh, yeah. I've, I've seen everything in between. Um, certainly the pace of innovation, and that's not surprising to anybody. Um, has picked up from from an industry perspective it's been interesting to see the industry mature during that time because if if you think about it i mean uh, telco particularly the wireless section Mm -hmm. it's really kind of an accidental um thing that was stumbled into and by that i mean uh when they were um auctioning off the first licenses and, you know, these companies were bidding on, on these wireless licenses, these cellular licenses. You know, most people, it, it was kind of done on a lark. And if you pay too much for it, you were ridiculed because, you know, you were looked at as throwing your money away. So when things took off and the way they took off, there was a very kind of, of uh, fly by the seat of your pants, cowboyish nature. So you are part of a large corporation but at the same time, you were really kind of in your own little innovative bubble. So in a way, we felt more like a funded startup than we did part of a large corporation. And, you know, that's the best of both worlds. So 
they kind of leave you yeah. alone to do what you need to do. And, and, and it's a lot of fun. You're flying by the seat of your pants. But at the same time, all you have to do is produce results and the funding continues to come. So it, it, it was the best of both worlds. So really, I guess the evolution I have seen has been the evolution from that very entrepreneurial startup feel, which really precipitated my change from uh, the more traditional wireline services to wireless. Yeah. To where we are today, where the industry is more or less mature. Mm-hmm. So we're not, you know, in the playpen anymore. We're not, you know, the whiz kids that you just leave alone and you just throw them money and, you know, you're making money hand over fist. It, it is the re it's, it's got everything that a mature business has to deal with. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. We've gone from that startup phase to now it's, it is a mature business with all of the things that come along with, with that and expectations and hierarchy or bureaucracy or things like that, that, that end up coming into play. Yes, sir. What was it like though, or in the early days, you know, being in, as you said, that sort of the best of both worlds and the kind of having the funding, almost, almost unlimited funding, um, but also being left alone to really go innovate. Well, and again, it, it was kind of the, the best of both worlds. So you didn't have the worries that you would have if you were a true startup in terms of, you know, pitching and, and venture capital and all that good stuff. Um, you know, the yeah. big uh, faucets were on as far as I was concerned. Now, now you had to execute uh, sure. to make it happen. But as long as you executed, I mean, in any part of the business, I mean, particularly, at, and, and I'm talking, let's say, uh, 90s, maybe through the early 2000s. Okay. Um, wireless was the cash cow of any corporation that it was a part of. And when you're a part of the cash cow and you're <laughs> the golden child, I mean, that that's a great place to be. Plus, um, organizations were very flat. So you're in an office pretty much with all the decision makers. And literally I was a part of teams that were uh, responsible for deploying networks, like in the town I lived in and in the area I grew up in. And it was pretty neat to be able to do that and just kind of live it to the extent where you're doing what you're doing Monday to Friday and maybe on Saturday, I don't know, you're at the mall with your family and you're trying to get a cell call off and, you know, uh, you, you get a fast busy. It's like, oh, crap, we need to do this, that, and the other. And, and, <laughs> and you go home and you're checking stats. It's like, you know, what's blocking? That kind of thing. So you felt so connected to it that it was really that kind of immediate feedback. I mean, literally not only from you, your friends and your family knew what you did for a living, which sometimes that's not so great. Yeah, I, I got a problem. You know, can you help me with it? But really, you just felt like you were part of this very uh, uh, tight knit, innovative community. Yeah, I mean, you you essentially described what a lot of people like about startups with being able to be close to decision makers and being in the same room. And it sounds like you were really able to do that, and then also being close to customers, you know, living it as you said, taking taking calls and finding bugs, so to speak, and 
yeah. uh, being able to go figure out why why are you not getting service or things like that. So it's really it's really interesting. There's a lot of parallels I see to you know what people typically think of as startups today and the benefits being in that corporate environment. Right, right, right. So imagine having all of that and 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 a rich uncle who can help fund it. That's, <laughs> that's basically where we were. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, exactly. That's yeah. That's why a lot of people like to go that VC right VC route. Right. That's their their rich uncle, so to speak. So it's really interesting hearing, you know, the corporate side because tend to talk to mainly startup entrepreneurs and people that don't have that kind of backing, so to speak, unless it's from the VC world. Right. What what are some of the other things that you've learned over your 30 plus years um, at the, the same employer? <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and, and again, I mean, I, I say the same employer, but I've worn a lot of different hats with that one employer. So in, in a sense, it, it feels like I've had a lot of different jobs within the same industry. Yeah. So, you know, fortunately, it, it's not, oh, I've been doing the same thing for all this time. Uh, but, but that being said, corporate cultures are our corporate cultures. And at the end of the day, particularly as the business has matured, uh, you do get, you do learn things about how large corporate cultures make decisions. And, and that's not good, bad, or indifferent, but really learning the business side and really having things fleshed out. So you go from, you know, having your little toys to play with that your rich uncle funds to particularly as the business matures, understanding why you're not going to get funding for certain things, understanding that the business has other priorities at a given time. And you really have to start to look at what you're doing in the context of what a larger corporation is doing. So that's been a, a lot of the learning. I mean, I feel like now, not only do I still have that, that, that core of innovation within me, but I understand the basics about the trade-offs that large corporations need to make in order to um, meet their, their um, goals and really also keep their stockholders happy. Yeah, no, that's a that's a good point. It's a different, yeah, who you kind of roll up to, and ultimately at the end of the day, it's making sure that the shareholders are happy, customers are happy, but it's a different, playing by a slightly different set of rules um, yep. in that corporate environment. But I think one of the things that I want to point out and is that you said that you haven't been doing the same thing for 30 years. And I think that that is really important. And the experiences that I've had in the corporate world and when I've talked to other folks that have gone the entrepreneurial route, it tended to be that there wasn't a clear path to that next challenge. It was sort of doing the same thing over and over again and wanting more and being able to grow and develop. So it sounds like you've had that opportunity. Yeah, yeah. And and the thing is, I mean, the, the great thing about uh, really the industry is, is that the industry, I guess one of the advantages of the growth is the growth has provided those opportunities. I mean, because yeah. um, when I say the same employer, um, we uh, probably the, I'm on my sixth or seventh different name that would uh, be on my check if I still got a physical check. Um, I was looking the other day and one consistent thing that I've gotten is you get these little, little plaques or whatever for every five years you've been there. I think every one of mine has a different corporate name. <laughs> so th th there's been that much 
changeover. And every time there's changeover, it presents kind of an opportunity for you to, to, to reinvent yourself because the business changes, the structure of the business changes. Yes. Some um, duplicated functions get uh, maybe eliminated, but also you end up doing business a different way. Mm-hmm. And if you kind of keep your eyes and ears open and kind of prepare yourself, it's a great opportunity to slide into that next um, opportunity. So every time has really been an opportunity to, to reinvent myself. Yeah, no, I love that. I love that attitude as well. Cause I think that that's really important. It would probably be easy to see as things change, you've you were at, when you were in kind of that scrappy startup stage, and then things mo- move to a more mature stage, and if things are changing, it could be easy to be like, "Man, I really want to go back to that," but instead finding the opportunity in the 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 shifting, uh, yeah, I guess underlying name of the company and opportunities that presented themselves as the technology and the business matured. Right, right, yeah. I mean, the the whole thing about um, being comfortable with change because when you're a part of a large uh, corporation, there is a tendency to want to get comfortable with things. I mean, you know, big brother is is, is taking care of you. I don't have to worry about anything. That's one way that you can play the game. Another way to play the game, which I think is more and more the only way to play the game, you know, as, as we've gotten into the last few years is that you have to, if, if you don't look forward to those changes, if you don't have the ability to roll with the punches, uh, if you don't almost have an entrepreneurial spirit, even though you're a part of a large corporation, um, your opportunities are going to be very, very limited because that's really what corporations are looking for. They're looking for people who have more of that entrepreneurial spirit, who are flexible and um, you either develop that skill set or you, you know, find yourself by the wayside. Yeah, that's no, a it's a great point. Yeah, even though even though you're within a large corporation, corporations still need to innovate, right? If you know, you can look at some of the companies that didn't. When you look at a Kodak or a Polaroid or some of these companies that were at the time, you know, they were the premier technology, and they let innovation go by the wayside or parked it on a on a on uh you know on a shelf somewhere because it would interrupt their current business model and you know we don't we don't really see them around anymore right so right that's a really great perspective of the the types of traits that corporations are also looking for the same that also apply whether you're an entrepreneur or not right Vince one thing that I really want to touch on and would love to hear your perspective is as a person of color in corporate America what has your experience been like and I'd love to hear sort of the change in if, if there's been a change, um, you know, over the time of your 30 years, you know, we see the NASDAQ starting to roll out some diversity requirements and things like that when it comes to, to corporations that are listed on their exchange. And we're at this time in, um, you know, right now socially where we are wrestling with the legacy of systemic racism that has been in our country. And I'd love to hear sort of your perspective on that from the corporate America side and what you've experienced. I may have a few thoughts on that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and it's really kind of kind of where to start. Um, maybe uh, th- let me hit on a couple of points. So uh, first of all, um, in, in 30 plus years, I have not 
experienced, to my knowledge, one incident that I could point to with a hundred percent certainty and go, Hey, that's racism. And, and it's pointed towards me and I don't like it. Yeah. Not one. If I back that up a bit <laughs> <laughs> and uh, talk about things where I strongly suspect uh, that race played a part in decision-making uh, different answer. And okay. one of the things that I had to establish relatively early on in order to deal with that was, was I going to try to take the time to try to figure out uh, when I didn't get uh, a promotion, when I didn't get credit, when I didn't get accolades, whether that had something to do with my race or not? Do I take the time? Is it really, is it really going to benefit me to, to, to try to unwind that? And, yeah. I ha- and I had to make a decision pretty quickly that no was <laughs> what, what was the decision I made. So I, I more or less function under the assumption that in all of those incidents, X amount of time, it may have been because I was legitimately not qualified. Uh, y amount of times may have been because you know, um, maybe the the person I was interviewing with or whatever just didn't like me. Some people like me, some people don't. And the amount of times um, it had something to do with race. Now, whether or not uh, that's like blatant, you know, I don't like people of that race race. Mm-hmm. I, I would like to think that it's not so much that, but I think it is absolutely the case that when you are looking for people to, whether it's mentor them or promote them or put them on a certain fast track, I think there is a part and and it's kind of human nature to kind of look for people who remind you of you or remind you of your friends or remind you of your son or remind you of your cousin, somebody that you have a certain affinity with. So I think that that is a tide unless you have blatant policies in place to check that, to kind of help that part of human nature be corralled that, that that's just going to happen. So It's just something that that I've had, you know, to learn to live with. I mean, there have been opportunities that were open to me. And if I were a betting man, I would say that. And and again, I wouldn't necessarily say race, but the fact that I was not. um, is it more of the unconscious Chummy. bias? Is that what you're? Yeah, 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 yeah. That I mean, that's a very good way of putting it. That unconscious bias did play a role, and like I said, it's not anything I, I can point my finger to. It, it, it's it's just a sure. feeling you get, particularly when you see the person who got the opportunity that you didn't get, and you know, you, you kind of start connecting the dots. You know? Yeah. No, absolutely. And I, I, I guess, first off, it's a good thing that you haven't experienced that. And I'm sure if you had, you probably wouldn't still be at the the same employer in that same role. So, you know, naturally, I think that that, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, in terms of, you know, how can we start to control for some of these unconscious bias? I'm not asking, you know, for you to, to solve this for us here on this call, but what are some of the right. things that you think 
you know, we can, we can implement whether it's in a startup environment or a corporate environment to help support um, people of color and folks that um, aren't represented currently to the degree well, that they should be. Well, I, I will say this, I mean, and, you know, particularly through the events of, of the last year or two, uh, I have seen my employer probably make the most sincere steps in that direction that I've seen in my entire career. And, 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 and that is very encouraging. Yeah. Uh, in terms of, and I would have to say the biggest thing that I've seen, and, and it sounds simple, is the willingness to have the conversations. Yeah. Um, that there's been a lot of that promoted, um, you know, from, from the executive level on down. And, you know, some of them have been, as they say, uncomfortable conversations. But just being able to introduce that into the workplace and get past this whole idea of work is work, and that's not something that belongs here, just embrace it and talk about it. Um, I think having the courage to keep those conversations going is, is, is going to be the, the most important thing. Because what I do wonder is, I mean, we are in a particular moment in time um, here at the end of, of, of the strangest of years where there have been a lot of pressures on us. Uh, some of those pressures have been, you know, um, uh, seeking racial equality and, and, and racial justice. And I do think in a year or two years, once we're past this moment in time, do we keep the momentum going? Do we have the determination to continue to have the conversations? I think if we have the conversations and we continue to, to, to take that out, that's going to be our best path forward. Because even for me, just, and, and I've noticed this just in myself, just being in a workplace where those conversations are okay to have, has has really been kind of refreshing to me. Yeah. The fact that I don't feel like there's this whole side to my persona that I have to leave at home, quote unquote, even though I'm working from home now, <laughs> uh, that, that I have to leave at home and kind of assume another identity when I go to work and then I can pick up my, my real identity when, when, when I go home. Yeah. I, I think everybody goes to that to, to an extent, I would imagine. Uh, but I think when you are a minority, there's more that you're asked to leave at home than you would be otherwise. So if we keep the conversations going, I, I think that's our, our, our best path forward. I mean, uh, you know, all the trainings and unconscious bias training and all of that is nice, but Without the conversations, it's it's pretty limited in its effectiveness, in my opinion. Yeah, no, Vince, I really like the way that you phrase that of um, having to leave more of yourself at home, right? Because I think to some degree, a lot of people will will. I mean, I, I felt myself doing this. There were certain parts of me that I wouldn't bring to work, but having to to leave more of yourself at home and just how draining that is, um, I think you know make, makes a lot of sense. And just having the conversation and the dialogue and keeping that open line of communication. Um, it's draining. And the funny thing about the drain is you're not even aware it's there because, yeah. you know, there are certain things that if you have been doing them for your entire career in some aspects in your entire life, you just kind of 
accept that for the way it is. When you're yeah. able to kind of step outside of that and really look at it, it's like, wow, that that's a burden. If I don't have to do that, how much more capacity do I have to, to actually contribute uh, yeah. to, to what I'm trying to do here to work? Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, from, if you look at it purely from an employer perspective, right, you want to get the, the best out of your people and the most out of your people. And how can, how can that happen if folks don't feel comfortable being themselves? Right, right. And, and, and hopefully companies will understand that, that this is not just something that they need to take seriously uh, to, to be good people or, or even to be good corporate citizens in the community. It's going to help your business <laughs> be yeah. more effective. I mean, and I can see glimmers of that. Um, I'm, I'm just hoping that it doesn't turn into the flavor of the day at some point. Yeah. And that, that makes sense, right? We tend to go through these waves, it feels like, in the United States where this you know, racial equality, racial justice becomes really important for a few years, and then we get busy with other things or other things, and then it comes back up, and it's kind of, you know, we're in that moment right now. So we'll keep the, that conversation hopefully going so it's not just a moment in time. Right, right. And, and, and we're in an interesting part of history here where I've already started to to think. Uh, it looks like we're finally uh, seeing some light at the end of the tunnel in terms of our current uh, situation with, with the virus, if you don't mind me yeah. bringing that up and maybe yeah, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> the conversation we're having here a bit. Uh, we're finally seeing some light at the end of the tunnel. Um, what are things going to be like once we're more or less back to normal and we're not kind of in, in this situation where uh, we have so much time for self-reflection. Do, do we just, Oh boy, I can, I can travel again. Oh boy. I don't have to wear a mask. Oh boy. I can go to festivals again. Will, will we, <laughs> will, will, will we all just get so, you know, nuts that we're finally released from this thing that we forget some of the lessons learned? Because I do think there's an association with um, all of the strange things that have happened this year. And there, there, there's kind of a connective tissue. And, and it's just my theory that, yeah. um, I mean, e e even the lockdowns that we've been under and, and, and the very strange environment, um, it's kind of amplified some of the other things that we've been dealing with. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think you're spot on, right? I think it all, I mean, obviously we've had these issues um, around race that have been going on for, you know, since the, the founding of the country. Um, and this moment in time being locked down and everyone at home on devices and being able to see what's going on and take that time to reflect, yep. um, I think has been played a huge, a huge role in that. And also having the time for folks that went out and protested and did protests and things like that, like having the time to, to do that without worrying about how to get to work or working from, you know, like there's a ton of things that people didn't have, weren't traveling over the summer. So they had the opportunity to go out and show support. So. Right. Spot um, on. Yeah. Yeah. So Vince, I want to uh, transition a little bit in terms of, uh, you know, your experience having worked for the same employer for 30 plus years. Have you ever had that entrepreneurial bug though? You obviously got to experience a little bit in the corporate setting with the rich uncle. Um, but have you, have you had that entrepreneurial 
Prologue and would love to hear about that if, if you have. Yes, I have. Uh, and it's kind of interesting that not only did it bite me at a particular time, it seemed to have bitten several of the people who I worked with. And I don't know exactly what was going on at that time, but I think maybe it, it was a, a part of kind of that evolution from being that more, you know, um, innovative kind of cowboy company to, to being more in a corporate environment. And th- there were people who decided that, you know, maybe the corporate, you know, gig is out for me. And I was one of those who started to wonder what, well, maybe, I mean, this has been great, but maybe it, it has a certain shelf life. So absolutely. Um, I did make an attempt to start a side business with the, with the idea of, okay, let me get this thing going on the side, uh, grow it. And then ultimately, you know, that would be my exit out of the corporate world and into something more entrepreneurial. Um, since I'm still in the corporate world, uh, I think it's evidence that that didn't work, but, but yeah, yeah, I, I, I've definitely had that, that itch and I have, uh, attempted to, to scratch that itch with, um, some good lessons learned, but not, not success by, uh, I guess the conventional definition. Sure. Yeah. Well, Vince, what are some of the things that you learned and can you talk a little bit about what that side business was and uh, <laughs> some of the challenges that you faced? That... I, I, I can talk about it now because it was some years ago. I, <laughs> Doesn't it doesn't hurt it, as much. <laughs> it, it was literally painful for me to talk about for uh, uh, several years afterwards. And it was actually the, the inspiration for my first podcast. But that's another story uh, for perhaps another day. Um. So I decided that since I was new to business, and again, this is after talking with with several friends of mine who were kind of thinking along the same lines, um, decided that maybe um, a franchise would be the way to go. Because, you know, the general idea around, you know, a franchise is, hey, you're buying into a system. So you don't really have to know this industry. You don't have to really know this business. You don't have to really know business. We're going to give you the playbook. You go out and execute and everything's going to be fine. So it was probably one of the few times in my life that I took kind of a leap of faith, so to speak. And with the thought process of, hey, I I don't know the small business world, so I really do need to just listen to what these people are telling me, even when uh, certain things kind of went against my my instinct. I kind of told myself, well, you know, you have the instincts of, of an employee. You don't have this entrepreneurial instinct. You need to listen to these guys big mistake first of all. Yeah. <laughs> Huge mistake because in in retrospect, the 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 flashing yellow lights that I saw uh turned out to be very real yellow flashing lights. And uh, every franchise system is different and I'm sure there are some great operators out there. Um and even the 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 system I was a part of 
I don't know. I guess it worked out for some people. So I, I can't just, just yeah. say, Hey, Hey, it's lousy or something like that. But in retrospect, I saw a couple of flaws in the way their business was set up. It seemed that they were set up because they pitched it as, well, you know, your success is our success. So of course we're going to help you be successful. You're successful. We're successful. Everybody's successful. Yeah. To a certain extent. But when you really look at their business models, there was a way for them to be successful (laughs) without necessarily you as an individual franchisee being successful. So basically, particularly if they were able to convince you to open up a new territory, Mm -hmm. then there were certain uh, through the process there were certain people that benefited just from you getting into business. Mm. So first of all, um, the, the person who um, supposedly assisted you and mentor you in the business, um, that person would get a cut of you know, what you paid in initially. Okay. So their motivation out of this whole thing was not necessarily to see you successful. They just needed to sell and, and open more new franchises because every time they open a new franchise or they assisted in opening a new franchise, they got to pay out. So right there, the person who's supposed to be advising you on the best way of setting up your business doesn't have the same objectives as you have. They just want you to get it open <laughs> so they gotcha, can get paid. Yeah. Um, I also realized that even the statistics that they use to talk about success, I know one, one of the big metrics they would talk about was the length of time their franchises uh, had been in business. Uh, what they didn't track was how many franchise owners a certain uh, business had churned through. So mm-hmm. even long after I left them, they could pitch my particular uh, franchise area as being a successful franchise area because it's been in business for 10 years. Now, the, the, yeah. the fact the fact that you burned through five owners in 10 years was not a part of the pitch. And all of these things are things that I, if I just trusted my instinct, mm-hmm. I, I would have seen right through it. I mean, I can remember uh, trying to put my first operating budget together and calling the guy who was supposed to be my, my, my mentor or whatever they call him at the time going, dude, I can't make the math work on this. <laughs> <laughs> and his deal was, well, well, you're being way too conservative in, in, in terms of number of customers in your first year. So, you know, increase your customers and you'll be fine. It's like, okay. <laughs> Without a real operational idea behind that in terms of, well, if I do that, I got to put more into my advertising and I got to do this, that, and the other. Um, Again, um, yeah, I I learned a lot from the experience, but it's probably more of a cautionary tale than anything else. Gotcha. Yeah. So it sounds like they're looking for specific red flags when it comes to franchises. I guess the incentive structure for the person I guess I guess all franchises probably structured a little bit different, but the incentive right. incentive structure for if you're the franchisee is your success tied long term tied to this the success of the overall 
um, franchisor versus just is it a one-time hit and done kind of deal. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and had I realized that that was a, that would have been a red flag. Had I just trusted my instinct when I couldn't make the math work because I never do anything unless I can make the math work. (laughs) But like I said, it was one time in my life. It's like, well, I'm trying something new. They know what they're doing. I'm going to take a leap of faith. And one of the most important things I learned out of that situation is, is I was right the first time. You know, if, if, if the math doesn't work, back away, back away quickly. Yeah, the math doesn't lie, right? The numbers aren't going to lie to you. Right. Yeah, that's really interesting. So advice for anyone that is exploring a franchise opportunity. Were, did you, for example, did you talk to any other folks that had had success or was it just sort of the mentor that brought you on? They were very careful to steer you towards certain franchise owners. So their whole spin was uh, there are these successful franchise owners. You go visit them. You talk to them. You go spend a day with them and really learn how the business works. Now, there may be you know, a couple of franchises you know, closer to you in your area. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't go talk to them. They're, they're not doing too well because they're not following the system. And, you know, that's not going to be a good map for you. So go and visit these other guys. So again, being dutiful, I actually found two, two types of people I would talk to. If the people who I was steered towards talking to were like just the, you know, super gung ho. This is the greatest thing ever. I live, eat and sleep this franchise type people. The others were very cagey in terms of of uh, you talking with them because they were in the franchise. They they didn't want to badmouth it. Okay, but but at the same time, you could tell that you know something was not right. Yeah. Again, yeah. Again, a red flag that if I'd listened to my instincts. So yeah, yeah, definitely. Don't don't park your instincts first of all. Um, seek independent opinions. Uh, yeah. Talk to other franchisees, get, get the good stories, get the bad stories, get as much realistic information as you can get. And, uh, particularly if you are a person who has any type of business experience, uh, don't shuttle those instincts because, there's nothing magical about what they're doing at the end of the day, they're running a business. So if you can't make the math work, run away or walk away, maybe. <laughs> and and also do make sure that you understand the incentive structure, each and every person that you, you talk to, particularly if it's the person who's trying to sell you on the franchise Make sure you understand how they're being compensated. Make sure you understand what their objectives are. And then look at the whole thing, particularly the advice you get from them through the lens of, you know, that's nice. What's in it for you? So a little, I don't want to say cynicism, but a little care in terms of, really evaluating the opportunity and also, and I don't know if this is, if this is the case now, something I didn't know at the time 
is that by law, you have X amount of time to to exit out of a franchise deal once you've signed it. Now, yeah, yeah, yeah. Research that. Yeah, not legal, not legal or <laughs> yes. tax or financial yeah. advice. Do your own yeah. research, but there yeah. could be. Yeah, a- yeah, yeah. So I'll put it like this: understand your legal rights uh, in terms of an out. One thing that I didn't do was I signed things I didn't get a lawyer to review. That that that's probably the the most realistic. Uh, bulletproof piece of advice that, that I can give as far as that's concerned. I don't know the particular ins and outs, but odds are you're going to have a stack of paper put in front of you at some point where you're not going to be able to understand the ins and outs. Uh, if you're going to enter into something that has that much impact, that's going to legally bind you in that many ways. Um, I didn't involve a lawyer and I wished I had. So I would at least strongly consider um, yeah. uh, having a uh, legal counsel to look over anything I signed. Yeah. I think that's great advice. Yeah. Spending a few hundred dollars or whatever it costs to get an attorney to review those documents could have potentially saved a lot or found, found an opportunity when those red flags came up where you didn't feel trapped or locked in. And it's easy to be like, okay, yep. I might've missed it when I first signed, but now let's, uh, let's, let's take the exit out, out of this business. Right, right, right. And um, n- not to hang out on, on this particular subject too long, but can I throw in one more piece of advice? Feel free. Yeah. yeah. Another really easy way I could have saved myself all of, of, of the heartache was just listen to my wife. <laughs> <laughs> she, I mean, I'm going through this thing and, and I'm just focused and I want to do this. And, you know, she's just, you know, I mean, she was not for it at all. I mean, all of the of uh, the red lights and flashing yellow lights that I was ignoring, she was seeing very clearly because she was not caught up in it. So yeah. I was kind of caught up in the excitement and the emotion. It, it, I mean, there was that emotional component that was blinding me. And here she is standing, you know, right over here, seeing this thing just very black and white. Um, and to her benefit, she didn't want to, you know, stomp on my dreams or anything, but she saw things clearly because she was not in an emotional state that I couldn't see. And if I had just said, okay, you know, I'm, you know, kind of caught up in this thing, but if you're not good with it, I'm not good with it. That would have pulled me out at a time where I was not seeing very clearly. Yeah. I think that's great advice. You know, having that objective, uh, you know, partner that, that, uh, that isn't as tied up in the emotional component. And yeah, I tend to find that, uh, that partners tend to, to pick up on things that you don't, you know, they know you pretty well and can pick up on things like that. So listen to your wife. There you go. <laughs> Vince, would you do it again? <laughs> wow. Uh, would I do it again? I would do it again differently. Okay. If that's not skirting around the question too much, because the, the whole idea of of uh, scratching an entrepreneurial itch, I would definitely do that again. Uh, wading in in the way that I did it, um, absolutely not. Um, okay. In 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 terms of of the money lost. And really in terms of, like I said, I couldn't talk about the thing for a couple of years. So, uh, I, I mean, there were like emotional wounds there. So <laughs> I, 
I, I would, I would do it smarter. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, wanting to scratch that itch was, was good. Learn some lessons, but if you're going to do it again, it would be done differently. Yeah. Speaking on that kind of emotional wounds when it comes to money, finances, obviously you have a podcast, the CFO at home podcast that talks about this. All right. Could you describe your relationship with money? My relationship with money. That, that's a very good question. Um, I have a couple of guiding um, uh, thoughts about money uh, personally. One, um, and, and let me see if I can find a pithy way of saying this. Um, I've I felt for most of my adult life that the best reason to have money is so you don't have to worry about money. So to me, it's not so much about acquisition. It's not even so much about travel, although when we can travel again, you know, I'm going to love to travel. Uh, I'm more of an experienced person than, than a thing person. So I enjoy my experiences. But at the end of the day, I don't want to have to, I want to minimize the amount of my life I spend worrying about money. So I can enjoy my life regardless of whether I'm enjoying that on some, you know, nice vacation or whether I'm just, you know, savoring my own peace of mind, puttering around my own house. So that, 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 that's kind of my, my driving force is I don't want to have to, <laughs> I want to minimize my worry about money because I have seen too many people uh, in situations where that seems to be all they do and it is all consuming and it, and it really takes down the quality of your your life so i hope yeah. i answered the question you did yeah it's your relationship there's no wrong answer right it's your relationship <laughs> to it um I, I really like that though it's the minimizing the having enough money to minimize having to worry about money essentially right so yep have you always been at that place or has that been a journey and any thoughts on how folks can get to that same place? I think to a certain extent, I have always been that way. Um, and, and when I say always, okay. So maybe when I was in college or maybe when I was in high school, I thought, well, yeah, it, it's, as soon as I get, you know, the, the income, I want to do this. I want to, I want to live here. I want to drive that. I mean, yeah, I, I, I went through all of those, those instincts, but I think a couple of things, you know, kind of help counteract that one. Um, and, and some of this is just the way I was, I was raised. Um, my parents were, were fairly um, uh, mature when I was born and I'm fairly mature now. So my parents were like, you know, depression era, world war two greatest generation type people. And that, I think helped shape my relationship with money because that shaped their relationship with money. So that, that, that's part of where I guess my, my thought process come from. I think I lost your question. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was how to get to, how have you always been in that place where the goal yeah. has been to minimize uh, yeah, money is yeah. a concern. Yeah, yeah. I, I think particularly once I started uh, my professional career, okay, I, I figured that out pretty quickly because again, it, it was really based on what I saw going on around me and your influence by what you you see going on around you. 
And it just seemed to me, and, and it's not like I was taking notes or anything, but just on a high level, I observed the fact that, you know, people in my life that I knew who were consumed by money problems that seemed to just, just weigh on them constantly. Uh, so, so I had those influences in my life yeah. and I had other people in my life. It's not like they had a lot of money. But the money they had, they had it under control. Mm -hmm. And it just seemed to me that their lives, those are the lives I wanted to emulate. Yeah. So really, it, 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 it's really kind of looking around you, particularly when you're young, and saying, okay, who do I want to emulate? What lifestyle do I want to emulate? Um, and, and looking at that from a holistic standpoint, to look at it from a... Um, I want to be like that guy because he drives that car and lives in that house is one thing. But if you look at it in terms of looking and really looking at people and saying, okay, I want to be that type of person, then I think that is one valuable thing that you can do to, 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 to lead yourself in that direction. So in terms of, of um, maybe how do you get there? In, in terms of how do you change that relationship with money? Uh, again, just, I mean, people are all around you. You know, people who are in all different situations. You don't necessarily know everybody's financial situation, but those that you do, I mean, take note. I mean, uh, take note of, you know, people who may have the material things and may uh, you know, take the trips and that kind of thing, but they always seem to be worried about money. Look at what that does to the rest of their life. So no matter how much stuff they have, do they seem content? Yeah. And then look at other people that you, you may know in your life. They may not have the material things that these other people have, but you, you never hear them really sweating money. Yeah. And they just seem to be more content. So, so just, just be observant. That's, that's probably, yeah. probably what I have to say on that. Yeah, no, I like that. And I, and, and I'm, I'm going to kind of try to distill down what you said, at least okay. one way that I interpret it as saying, you know, there's the, there's the surface level things of the flashy money or the flashy car or big house or all that kind of stuff. But there's, but what you're really saying is look for the people that have the character, right? The character that you want to emulate and, specifically when it comes to to finances and those are the people that you want to latch on to versus the let me flash all the shiny things new things that i can buy and and all that kind of stuff right 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 character and and contentment because i actually believe that 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 that's a thing as well and okay. particularly you know in, in, in a environment where we're becoming more and more sensitive to you know people's stress levels and anxiety and that type of thing I mean, really take a look at um, yourself and how you want to live your life in, in terms of stress, in terms of anxiety, and just be intellectually honest with yourself and realize that how I manage my money has an effect on those things and just make your choice from there. Yeah, I love that. I love that response. I think it, it makes a lot of sense, Vince. In terms of 
um, what you're doing with the CFO at Home podcast. How does that tie in? And can you talk a little bit about what led you to start that and talk about money and finances and, you know, being as, as the podcast states, the CFO at your house, at your own home and, and why, what led you to, to start that? Well, I'll, I'll go back to the top of our conversation. Uh, two trick pony my entire life. <laughs> One is technology. The, the, the other is finance. Um, uh, the other thing, when I was not uh, buying kits from Radio Shack, um, when I was a kid, I would, I mean, I can remember, and, and this is when, you know, the, the, the nightly news was a thing, the evening news. And, you know, I, I can, you know, remember my old man coming home from work and that's exactly do he, you know, turn on, watch the evening news. And as a part of that, there will always be, you know, well, you know, the Dow Jones did this, that and the other today. And I can remember asking questions about that. So, again, it, it, it was kind of a natural uh, thing that I've always been interested in. So I, I went from that to uh, really during the era of, of, of talk radio, I was a really kind of um, just starting my professional life. I spent a lot of time in the car. So I started logging time with uh, you know, the Dave Ramseys and, and, and those people. And I found that there was kind of a, a certain kindred spirit there. And it's like, wow, these guys, you know, I think like I think this, th this is great. And I can remember having the thought of, wow, isn't, isn't that a great thing to be able to do, to be able to broadcast like that and talk about money and talk to people about money and give them advice and talk to people and all that good stuff. But, you know, at that time you think about it, it's like, ah, you know, that that's radio and that's for professionals, you know, you know, little people like me can't ever do that. <laughs> And then comes along podcasting. <laughs> so, so actually th those two things just kind of fit together. And when I kind of put the pieces together in my mind, I mean, uh, for me, podcasting was a way to get into that little magical thing that I had fantasized about doing, but never really had um, a way of doing it. And it also just kind of fed this passion that I have really to, to uh, try to help people better manage their finances. And, and it just seemed to be a way to get that, that story out there. Yeah. And, and it was a matter of finding kind of a unique way uh, or unique way of delivering the message. And the whole idea of the CFO at home really comes from my experiences in terms of playing that role in terms of being the person in, in the home that at the end of the day is looked at to really have the long-term plan. It's a great thing. It's a thing that I have a natural inclination for, but at the same time, it, it, it has a certain amount of stress to it. And like anything that has a certain amount of stress, you can feel isolated almost at times because you feel like you're carrying this weight for your entire family and you know, it's just you making those decisions. So the idea to have a podcast that could serve that community of people out there who are all feeling that pressure and giving them tips and giving them uh, really just a, a, something they can listen to every week and go, hey, one, I'm not alone. There's a whole podcast talking to people just like me. And two, um, in, you know, 30, 45 minutes, I can pick up 
some tips that'll really help me to shoulder this burden. So that's, that's really where the whole idea came from. Yeah. No, I appreciate you sharing that. And I, I love the podcast. There's a couple episodes recently that I've, that I've enjoyed. You had, um, you had an author on it. I forget her name, but she talked about the conversations that you have to have one with yourself and with others. Yes. 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 That was, and I, I, I listened to that even as I edited that, that there's just some episodes you go, you know, this is exactly what I'm trying to do. And, and, and that really came together. Great. It, it, it just hit the nail on the head in terms of, okay, for this one episode, I accomplished exactly what I was trying to accomplish. That's awesome. Yeah. It's a great feeling when you get to the end of a, end of an episode edited and you're like, <laughs> this one, this one, this one hits the right, the right spot. Yeah. Vince, in terms of success, right? You've got a, a successful career, family, podcast, all these things going on. How do you define success? Like, what does that look like for you? Uh, success at this stage in my life. Uh, success is, is really for me, whatever you find fulfillment from at the time. And to me, for me, that's been a very dynamic thing. I mean, for um, a long while, success was um, getting certain accolades on my job and improving myself in certain things and, and getting positions and getting promotions and that kind of thing. That was success. And, and that's fine for a season. There, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, but you also have to realize, I had to realize when that was no longer yet, that that was not my, my soul or my primary measure of success. So it's really whatever fulfills you at the moment. Right now, uh, a lot of success is uh, uh, growing the podcast, maximizing that. That that is my current one of my current passions. And even on my uh, day job, um, I manage people now. And and really, people management is something I get a lot out of in terms of supporting my team, in terms of motivating my team, in in terms of really helping them to get where they want to go, both in their career, for everything from that to, you know, supporting them when they have personal tragedies, that kind of thing. Really, I mean, in that sense, you know, after 30 some odd years, I, I feel like I'm the mentor now, so to speak. So that's my fulfillment. So again, same job, 30 years, still getting fulfillment, just different types of fulfillment and just identifying what your fulfillment is and going after that. To me, that's success at any given moment. Yeah, I think a great way to, to paint success, right? That fulfillment is going to be different for everyone and it will change over time. So being able to identify that and pursue that. Yeah, I, I like that a lot. I wanted to talk, I want to touch on one thing specifically, Vince, we kind of talked about in the corporate environment, but I think it's really important. And obviously your um, expertise within personal finance and interest, but in terms of people of color building wealth, it's one of the things that is, is there's an additional layer of, of challenge and context there. And, I, and I'd love to, to hear your experience, your take on it. Um, having been in the personal finance world and obviously lived through that yourself building wealth for your family. What's that been like? 
Okay. And I'm, I'm so glad that we just didn't end it and we didn't have a chance to address this one because I have a few things to share. Um, in terms of building wealth, uh, first of all, and, and, and this kind of ties back to some things I've been listening to recently. If you look at how we've built wealth in this country over, you know, that the average person has, um, there are really a couple of things you look at real estate in the stock market to, 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 to kind of make a long story short. Now for both of those, you have to have the income in terms to be able to play in those arenas, but those are kind of the two paths. So first, uh, the first part is, is just continuing to be able to um, establish, uh, be it your own business, be it a corporate job, be it something that provides you that steady stream of income to be able to invest, whether you're going to invest in real estate or invest in, in the stock market. There are a lot of different opportunities out there. There's more than one way of doing it but you have to have the consistent capital to be able to put into one of those areas or another. Mm-hmm. And, and that's one thing that we have to do in terms of, of um, ensuring that we really have the table stakes to play the game. First of all, yeah. uh, outside of that, uh, some of the doors that have been closed to us traditionally, I don't think are as closed um, in, in terms of real estate, I mean, historically, uh, blacks in this country have been locked out of, of, um, really a lot of the boom times in real estate in terms of being able to buy, you know, personal properties in areas where they, they were really going to, uh, explode. Uh, and the great thing about the stock market is that is open to all, uh, as, as long as, as you have the capital to play. So I think just kind of building it fundamentally, it, it's a matter of one, having the capital to invest and two, having the knowledge to be able to, to, to play the game because it's, it, it, it's kind of a long-term game, whether it, it's real estate or whether it's investing, it's not, an overnight thing and it's generational. So for so many people, uh, particularly people of color, this whole thing about building wealth, this is a first generation thing. So it's not like you, you know, have necessarily a a parent that you can turn to or a sibling you can turn to. Um, And it's, it's difficult. I think at times to, to, to believe and be able to grasp that these things are available to you. So there, there, there's an educational component sure. and th- there's also that, that ability to have the capital to be able to play. I mean, I, I answer questions like for my nieces and nephews all the time in terms of like investing in particular. Yeah. And there's also a lot of information you have to cut through because usually when I get those questions, it's more in terms of, well, you know, I just download this Robinhood app, you know, so, you know, I, I wouldn't be able to trade, you know, Nike stock or whatever and great principles that are being taught. But 
the discipline of just long-term boring investing over a long period of time it's not on their radar because that's not what they grew up with that's not what they've seen modeled yeah and it's and it's not what the the guy on youtube they just saw is peddling <laughs> no yeah they want you to download robin hood and weeble and all the other ones so that way yeah. they get their affiliate marketing revenue and <laughs> yeah they're done <laughs> yeah 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 so so again, it, it, it's really having the income and the decent income yeah. uh, to be able to both live a, a, a good standard of life and, it, and if you manage it correctly, still have capital to invest. And then there's the education on how to invest. Yeah. No, I like that because I, th I think you lay out the problem in multiple layers, which obviously there's the, as you said, this is really first generational in terms of being able to help specifically, you know, people of color, black people specifically to build wealth in this country because we had 1950s redlining. Um, there's a book called the, the Color of Law that really outlines real estate specifically um, and some of the challenges that were built into the system, even like <laughs> I didn't even realize this, but even like FHA and certain things that were like government programs, it wasn't just, you know, private banks that were redlining. It was li literally written into certain laws that we had, which was, you know, crazy for me to, to think about and opened up my eyes to just how deep specifically when you look at real estate, this went, this, this problem goes. Right. And, and these things are relatively, relatively recent. Mm -hmm. uh, that that's the other thing that, that I try to encourage people to understand. I mean, I've had discussions, you know, particularly over the last few months with, with white friends of mine where we, we have, I, I mean, the discussion kind of starts off on, on this basic level of, you know, you know, slavery was hundreds of years ago, you know, what's the problem type thing. Yeah. Which you have to kind of tap into your patience to be able to answer that question, first of all. <laughs> <laughs> but once you tap into it, I've had to answer that question enough where I try to put it in, in, in perspective for them. I was born right basically in the heart of the civil rights movement. Um, I'm in a particular position where by the time I became aware of what was going on around me, uh, the country was kind of repenting from all of that. So I don't, I don't remember any of that, but it was like right on the cusp of, of literally me being born. So me being born at a time where um, I don't even know if my parents could vote, that kind of thing. Wow. Yeah. So I don't have to go all the way back to slavery to explain anything, as long as these things are things that happen within my lifetime, these things are recent. These, these are things that we're still battling back from. So yeah, legal redlining does not exist, um, at least to our knowledge anymore. You know, there, there, there are still social things, trust me, that it'll keep you from buying real estate in certain places, I believe, but oh, it's yeah. not legal anymore. But those kind of things have literally been le legal within my lifetime. Yeah. So the fact that we're still dealing with those things, it, 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 it just makes it obvious to me that yeah. we're still trying to overcome a lot of these things that have left 
of uh, uh, black people and, and a lot of other people of color in this country in a disadvantaged position. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the access and then that, as we talked about, even with within corporate America and some of the things in terms of um, access to quality income, things along those lines, there's, there's so many different ways that we could take this where you even have, you're in the position where you can invest, right? Because um, as you said, to get into real estate, to get into the stock market, you got to have, you got to have some capital that you can, that you can throw around. Um, And then we, you know, obviously get into the knowledge and then it's like, okay, well now you've got the money, but do you know how everything works? And I, I think this is, I think when we get into the knowledge piece that applies specifically, you know, to, to everyone, but definitely even more so to, to African-Americans and just people of color in general that are left out, um, that have been historically left out. Right. Because generally speaking, there has been a lot less native exposure. Yeah. You learn so, it from your parents or family. And if you don't have, exactly. if you don't have that, then you don't have that rich uncle to go turn to that understands this stuff, then good luck. It, 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 exactly. Because statistically, and, and it's been a while since I read this, but, but I'm pretty sure it still holds overwhelmingly statistically, you are likely to, to more or less stay in the socioeconomic group that you were born into. So to, to be able to, to break out of that kind of natural gravity takes a lot and, and, and it doesn't happen overnight and it doesn't happen easily. Yeah. So as a country, if we get to a point where we can just stop trying to dismiss these things and say, okay, you know, we, we paid attention to this for, you know, two years straight, you know, give me a cookie and let me get on with my life. And, and really dedicate ourselves to it. Uh, that's, that's the only path forward. Yeah. Vince, do you think similar to when we talked about race in the corporate environment, is it, is it having the conversations? Like what, how, how do we, how do we go beyond just the, you know, a two year period? And then we, you know, go look at the shiny new thing over here and forget about this particular issue and the challenges around it. We have to take it serious enough to make a commitment to it. And um, again, corporations have to realize, companies have to realize, the society has to realize that this is beyond, you know, something I'm doing to be a good egg. Um, Because I I think part of it, and and, and this might be a, a weird way of looking at it, is if you get the fact that it is in your own best interest, because at the end of the day, we're, we're all kind of, you know, narcissists and focused on ourselves. And and um, for me to do something out of the goodness of my heart, that's philanthropic and all that, you know, that's going to last for, for, for a certain amount of time. But if I can get, if I can understand this is in my own best interest, that's got licks. Yeah. <laughs> so so it, it, it's really just kind of making that connection to, yeah. to realize that, um, for, for black Americans, for minorities in general to do well in a society is for the betterment of the entire society, which unfortunately, um, and, and I don't get up on the political thing is 180 degrees, uh, from the political message, which is basically, you know, if you got yours, you know, watch that guy over there. He wants yours. He's going to take it. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it, it's not that it really is an opportunity to, to, to kind of 
thrive together. It, it, yeah. It's not as it's not zero sum. Yeah. No. I yeah. I I completely agree. I think that there that is one of the misconceptions. I think especially if you if if the mindset is that money is finite and scarce, we're printing what trillions of dollars at this point to get ourselves out of this pandemic. It's not like there's a lack of capital out there, right? Let's be realistic. It's right. You know that that's part of the that's part of the the response to to, you know, COVID-19 versus 2008 is that, hey, we're going to try something a little bit different and we're going to give some money directly to businesses and directly a little bit to people and support people that lost jobs. And you see that getting put back in the economy quicker because if you don't have much money, you're going to end up, you know, you're going to spend it, right? To be able to support basic necessities. And then you get into the whole concept around, um, like, you know, the, well, one time value money and being able to get that to move quicker throughout the economy, but also percentage of income. If you give, you know, another billion dollars to Bill Gates, he can't spend it any quicker than he can spend what he's already got. So like, right. you know, giving it to where, where it's going to do the most, most good and not even just giving, but in, in terms of lifting people up. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just like with, with individuals, I mean, if you want to know where a person's heart is, just just look at their their checkbook or their their their, vir- their virtual checkbook. Nobody has a checkbook anymore, but just look at their virtual checkbook. Look at where they spend their money, and that's going to give you all the insight you need in terms of where their priorities are, where their heart is, and everything else. So even as a country, I don't know. I, I think maybe we need to step back and look at our checkbook. What are we investing in? Yeah. Yeah. I think there's, there's, we can, we could probably dig into this for, for hours. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, I got a couple kind of quick rap, fi- rapid fire ish. You don't have to be super rapid fire, but okay. sort of wrap up questions, um, bringing it back to you, Vince specifically. All right. In terms of the best investment that you've made, what what is that? What is the best investment that you've made? I think the best investment that I've made, and this is not a cute answer, it is a legitimate answer, is probably my first contribution to my retirement plan. And there, there are a couple of practical reasons, and I've thought about this because I'm geeky like this. Uh, <laughs> What what is the value of that first hundred bucks or whatever it is that I allowed to be uh, taken out of my check and invested? The, the rate of return's got to be pretty good, let me tell you. So it, it, it's it's the best investment from that perspective, and it's also the best investment in terms of the beginning of forming a habit, a long term habit of consistent investing. So I, I think without a doubt, that's the best investment. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. If you actually did the math on how much that's compounded and returned, it, it would be blow, blow people's minds for yep. sure. Absolutely. Now on the flip side, Vince, what is the biggest or dumbest money mistake that you've made? Uh, you remember that franchise I was selling you about? <laughs> <laughs> I do. How could I forget? Hard to beat that one. Uh, I, I I didn't get into the numbers uh, of, of that, and I'll and I'll uh, steer away from specifics. But yeah, that burned up in, in a very short period of time. Uh, definitely more money than I, I have ever 
wasted in my life. That literally uh, changed the way that I funded my children's education. That's how much money got burned up during that time. I mean, we're, we're there. They're, they're both in college. I, I, you know, um, God willing, we'll be able to, to, to get them, you know, those four year degrees without any debt, which, which is our objective. And, and I think we're um, I, I like our chances. I'll put it like that. Um, but that whole experience, you know, we, we've been able to do it, but we would have been able to have done it just just with our eyes closed, if not for that particular debacle. Gotcha. Yeah, I, I can see why it took you a while to, uh, to open up and feel comfortable <laughs> talking about it. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, well, thanks for, for getting vulnerable. And I, th- I think we, we've, we've sort of alluded to some of this, but what would you say is the biggest challenge facing just everyday people when it comes to finances? Uh, I'll take this in, in a little different direction than, than what we've already covered and, and, and go a little bit more generic. This is just a thought I've had in, in terms of, and this is really kind of more of a generational observation, if you don't mind. Um, absolutely. I I think if, if you look at my experiences, uh, versus the experience of somebody who is, is just starting out, you know, somebody in their twenties, let's say, uh, and I'll tie this back to this one employer deal. Uh, the great thing about that was I had to go to one HR organization one time sign up for automatic deductions out of my check and just let that run. All I had to do was not be stupid enough to tell them to stop. And that's been automatic investing that's gone through my entire career. Now I've tweaked the percentages I've done this and that, but I have been except for maybe one six month period uh, during the franchise deal. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that that I stopped contributing in order to try to build my uh, cash back up. I have been consistent over that uh, a 30 year career. Relatively easy for me having one employer. Yeah. Uh, that's not, you know, that's unlikely to happen now. And, and they talk about, you know, people in their twenties having, you know, 15 jobs or 10 careers or whatever the stat is each and every time, they don't have the luxury of going to one HR uh, uh, place at, at, at yeah. one time, one HR department at one time, signing up and just letting it go on automatic. They have to make a decision each and every time if they're involved in a 401k or, or some something with a company, they have to make a decision each and every time uh, to what they're going to do with those funds, to roll those funds into an IRA, to uh, resist the temptation of just cashing it out. Um, So there has to be more intentionality there. So um, there are challenges that this generation has, and and, and I'll be straight that that I didn't have to to deal with, and they're just going to have to be a little smarter. I think that's a great point. And if you zoom that out on all of the gig economy stuff where there's not mm-hmm. even opportunities for 
a 401k. Uber's not going to, Uber and Lyft aren't going to offer you a 401k. Right. Right. <laughs> which, which means you, you have to have the discipline to, you know, open up an IRA, which is great, but you can't contribute as much to an IRA as you can contribute to a 401k. But still, uh, that just drives home the fact that you have to be consistent because if that's the way you're doing it, you know, unless they change the laws, you're not going to be able to wait until you're 40 and then all of a sudden start lumping huge amounts into your IRA. Uh, just because of those limitations, those accounts are built for slow, steady investment. Yeah. So you, you just have to be smarter and, and, and you just have to think about these things and plan more. Yeah. I think it's a great, a great point, Vince. And, um, this has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate you sitting down and opening up and talking about your experience and some of the the challenges that you face and also just how you, um, you know, look at personal finance and career and all that stuff. Cause it's, it's been really, really fun and insightful. All right. I've really enjoyed it as well. Um, not asking the questions, just answering the questions. Um, I'm enjoying this. I could get used to this. Yeah. Well, that's good. That's good. I'm glad it was enjoyable. I'm glad it's Absolutely. enjoyable. Absolutely. You made it easy. <laughs> well, I, I, I learned from you, so I got to mirror. Vince, I want to leave you with the last word. So anything you want to leave the audience with, and then also um, let us know how we can connect with you outside of the podcast. Okay. Well, this I, podcast I, specifically. <laughs> all right. Well, I have uh, dropped pretty much all the wisdom that, that I can, I can drop. So uh, I'll, I'll just leave you with this information. Uh, if you want to uh, reach out to me, anybody who wants to reach out to me uh, directly, uh, the best way of reaching me is uh, Vince at thecfoathome.com. Uh, the podcast is uh, CFO at Home. Uh, it's, it's a weekly broadcast. Episodes, try to keep them, uh, generally speaking, between 45 and uh, 30 minutes available on um, Apple and all uh, podcast apps at this stage of the game. And uh, there's also the website, uh, which is the CFO at home.com. Awesome. Definitely check it out. I'm subscribed. I'm a big fan. I, I love the the stories that you're telling and the people that you get on. So it's, it's really helpful. Um, Vince, thank you so much. All right. Really enjoyed it, William, and uh, really enjoying Silicon Alley as well. On your way out, please pound that subscribe button if you have not already, and share the podcast with others. That's the only way the community grows and others hear these incredible stories just like Vince's. I take pride in telling a mix of stories from people that have never had the chance to tell them to the names that you know and love. So please do your friends and family a favor and share Silicon Alley now. I'm William Glass, CEO and co-founder of Ostrich, and of course, your host of the Silicon Alley Podcast. Have a profitable day, everyone. You got no time to waste, but still you hesitate. Caught in a circle saying I'll never.